Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us as, um, as a connection uh, to who you are and, and what you have done for us. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would take this word as you promised that it will, and it will apply it to our hearts, that we would not just hear and learn in our minds, Lord, but that we would be changed into the men and women that you have made us to be. Pray this for the sake of your kingdom and your glory. In the name of your son, amen. You may be seated. All right, illustrations are fun with a new pastor because you get to see the things that I care about. Um, on March 23rd, 1999, the unthinkable happened in the world of professional hockey. It was announced that Chris Chelios had been traded to the Detroit Red Wings, and if you don't know hockey, let me explain. Um, I grew up a Red Wings fan, my dad was from Michigan. And Chelios had spent the previous nine years playing for the Chicago Blackhawks. And the Detroit-Chicago rivalry is one of those rivalries in sports that is unmatched. And Chelios was this mean, tough, and aggravatingly good defenseman who hated the Red Wings. He'd call them overrated continually in interviews. He once said that he would never be a Red Wing. And man, I hated Chris Chilios. So for 17-year-old Evan, it was so distasteful <laughs> to see his name on the back of a Red Wings jersey. Oh my goodness, I can't tell you. This man who has once like the worst part of our biggest rivals was now a part of our team. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, he had an amazing second part of his career with Detroit, actually better than he had with Chicago or with Montreal previously. He won two Stanley Cups, and when he retired, he actually took a job on staff with the Red Wings. For many Detroit fans, uh, Chelly, as he became known, was one of the most celebrated players in their franchise history. But not for me. I can't stand the guy. <laughs> can't handle the fact that he wore a Wings jersey. I have a major problem. <laughs> and I'm willing to own it, especially for the sake of illustration, because my issues are actually our issues. We are at our very core, I don't know, hateful people. We are. When we define somebody as our enemy, as other, it is so hard, if not impossible, to see them in any other light. Humanity is, is a people of unmeasurable enmity, divided, factious, prejudiced, suspicious, over any possible issue, right? 
race, class, age, political ideology, even the teams we support. This is who we are. It's who we've always been. Each and every one of us deep, deep in our nature. This is no different in Ephesus. We know about Ephesus as like much of the ancient world at the time. There were some deep racial and ideological tensions. This city that was this like landing place of all these different people in the Roman Empire. You had Romans, you know, Hellenistic Romans, and you had um, pagans from, you know, local pagans from uh, West Asia. And you had the Jewish community that had come in the diaspora. And in that, there was so much distrust and tension and hatred, particularly in Ephesus um, between the Jewish minority and the pagan Gentile majority. This was the biggest divide here. And in Ephesus, the majority were, were the Gentile pagans. And they really distrusted their Jewish neighbors. Suspicious and offended by this belief in one God. This was unheard of in the ancient world. Bothered by their religious practices of avoiding certain foods and not working on the Sabbath. And this enmity towards Jewish Ephesians had become baked into the culture and the tension of Ephesus. And it extended into the church. Where Gentiles now had to worship, study, and live with Jewish converts. And in our passage, Paul takes this division head on and pretty explicitly names it as incompatible with the gospel contrary to what Jesus is building in his church. This animosity, it's at the heart of that wicked power that we've named the world, the oppression that it holds us under. It's a central cause of injustice and human oppression and malice. It is a huge issue. I've talked about it before, I will talk about it again. Tim Keller suggests that you only really preach six sermons in your career. This is a big enough issue and a big enough passage. We're going to talk about it this week, and we're going to talk about it next week as well. And Paul's response to this enmity, this thing that lives deep in all of us, and it does, his response to it exposes some profound truths about Jesus Christ and about who he's making his church into. And we should heed what Paul is saying. Because we, like everyone else, have a problem with enmity. It's not just hockey teams. We tend to get a little checked out, I think, when scripture addresses racial divisions. Uh, for some reason, in our corner of the church, we tend to feel like we've kind of transcended this particular division, like this was a problem of our past and people who are harping on it today are kind of lost the plot. Honestly, that's not true. 
We haven't transcended racial division. And actually pretending that we have, it perpetuates the problem. In many ways, uh, we have allowed the racial division that exists in every human being's heart to fester and grow in the church to an extent that actually, I think, exceeds Ephesus. See, the Ephesian, Ephesian church stuck, struggled acutely in their day-to-day lives with racial tension because they had a racially diverse church. Because the nature of the church and the, where it was meant that, that Hellenistic Romans and pagan West Asians and Jewish men and women were worshiping together in one community, in one body. We, intentionally or unintentionally, have allowed the amenity that sits there under the surface to ununify us and successfully segregate the church. It's just the reality that we live in. I've used the quote before, I'll probably use it again, but Martin Luther King Jr. once said that, you know, 10, 11 o'clock on Sunday is the most segregated hour in American culture. The fact that we have allowed this to destroy the diversity of the church to the extent that we don't even have to think about it anymore on a Sunday morning shows us that this isn't gone. But it's worse than that. Because our enmity goes way further than race doesn't it? You give us a reason and we will divide between the rich and the poor, between the young and the old, men and women, Republican, Democrat, other, between our mission and vision in the church, because we do this in the church so much. Are we evangelistic? Are we service-minded? Are we inwardly focused? We do it in our polity. Are we Presbyterian? Are we Congregationalists? Do we have two offices or do we have three offices? We do this in our theology. We do this in our worship. The hymns that we sing. Where we want to meet on Sunday. And the sports teams that we root for. Anyone that wants to argue that we do not have a divided church is either ignoring the signs or just hasn't engaged with this community enough to see how the sausage is made. Now, in my early assessment of Grace, it's an early assessment, she is a friendly and kind and loving church. Hallelujah. A church, thanks be to God, that I think has more unity than a lot of others that I've seen and experienced. But we're not immune to enmity. There are always cracks in our church culture, in our own lives, where enmity seeps in. And if we don't continue to root ourselves in Jesus Christ, if we don't continue to acknowledge that this is who we are in our broken nature, we will see the unity that we do have slip away. So we need to listen. Yeah, we need to listen. 
I hope that this is a church um, like it appears to me where we are ready to shed off any enmity that we have in our hearts. But we still need to hear the message, do we not? So let's look at what he says. He addresses it pretty directly. I just lost it. Sorry. We need to be convinced along with the Ephesians. Heed, heed Paul's call for unity. Particularly as we go through a process that we naturally go through, right? Where we're kind of thinking about what it means to be the church. What it means to, to be grace here in this community. Because we don't, we, I mean, it's so easy. It's so easy for us to allow the culture of the world and devil and flesh to infiltrate who we are. Actually, we often make space for it. We baptize our enmity in our lives and in this particular church and the church at large. So when you hear what Paul has to say, and this is what um, he says, he actually links the problem of enmity with not just the world, but with the flesh as well. And I think just in how I understand Paul's logic, this means he links it with the devil. Enmity is a problem that flows from all of these places. It's as problematic as any other sin that we may have pictured last week when we talked about trespass and sin, which we once walked in. It's not a secondary evil. The new path that we walk in Jesus Christ includes a new unity and diversity in us. One that is uncomfortable for our flesh, one that is unprecedented in the world around us, and one that is unyielding <clears throat> to the power of the devil. Paul uses actually the same structure that he used last week to address this problem of enmity. First, he, he pictures the problem itself. He says, you were at that time alienated, in verse 12. Clearly dividing the Jew and the Gentile through the language of circumcision, which would have been a hot conversation in the church. I guarantee it. It was in almost every church early on. And here, leaning into the alienation of the Gentile Majority it says, You are strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope. But then, just like he did last week, he breaks the tension with this emphatic but. But now, verse 13. And then he pictures how in Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, we have been changed in Christ's. Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 13. 
And he addresses the Gentiles primarily here, not because the Jewish Ephesians were better on this issue. He makes that pretty clear. And actually, Paul's tendency in his letters is to address the stronger party in the conflict. He just, this is what he does. Here he addresses the Gentiles primarily. And the same type of division in Galatia, he addresses the Jewish members. It was a much more Jewish church. When he wrote his letter to Philemon and Onesimus, he addresses Philemon, the slave owner. And I do think there's an importance to see here how regularly the majority privileged um, authority is given the larger share of responsibility when it comes to these things. We need to hear that. This is how Paul operates in all of his letters. And so what Paul asked the Gentiles and Ephesians to do is to remember. Remember that as Gentiles, you were separate from all that you enjoy now. And he leans into the exclusivity of the covenant for Old Testament Israel, where Gentiles were effectively kept out. And he names these five specific separations, separated from Christ, from Israel, from the covenant, from hope, and from God. And this very history of ex- exclusion should keep them humble. How can they now claim a Gentile superiority? And Paul makes it, makes this division a flesh issue, which is really strange, and we could do like classes on what's going on here. He makes it an issue of their own individual personal cleanliness and righteousness. And what he does, it's so bizarre here, is he calls both uncircumcision and circumcision of the flesh. Both these divisions, those inside and those outside the Old Testament dividing lines, Paul connects that to the flesh. It's really provocative that Paul calls circumcision a practice instituted by God in Genesis as a mark of his covenant of grace, a fleshly practice. Actually, he says, by hands. And the language here points to Hebrew language about making idols. And in this, Paul acknowledges that the deep division between Jew and Gentile is a division of the flesh. It is a symptom of the flesh, and in verse 12, he says also the world, it is a result of sin, and division always is. Division kept them alienated both from one another and from God. And then, just like last week in verse 4, he pivots with this emphatic but. But now, in Jesus Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And in these words, he's reaching back to Isaiah. Isaiah 57, verse 16 through 19 says, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the Spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face 
and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far off and to the near, says the Lord. I will heal him. This picture in Isaiah of renewal, of God bringing those who are far off, the Gentiles, into the covenant. And then Paul goes on to emphatically insist that there is no place then for division in this new people that Christ has created. That Christ is created by killing hostility and by preaching peace. You are no longer strangers. You are fellow citizens. You are members of the household. Actually, he says, it's grammar time, guys, that they have been made into a new person, singular. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. And this isn't subtle. It's not a passing phrase. Paul actually develops it throughout this passage, continually shifting the number of his nouns from the plural to the singular on either side of the cross. In verse 14, he talks about, he he states through his grammar that before the work of Christ, we were both, and now we are one. In 15, before the resurrection, we were two, but now we are one man. And in 16, before Christ, we were us both, and now we are one body. He's not subtle. Paul claims the division is no longer, division is so incompatible with the gospel, particularly because Jesus has turned the plural us into one single unified person, one body. And this is a wild concept. We want to think of it figuratively, though I think the words of Paul and the words of the apostles, particularly in John, actually stress that this is not figurative language. And this is the big part of Paul's favorite little phrase, in Christ. See, John, in his passage about the vine and the branches, really leans into this. Maybe we'll get the opportunity to go through that together someday. But that the union that we have with Christ is intense. It is actually far more intimate than any other union that you can picture. We are made new in Christ, unified entirely with him. And then here, Paul suggests that not only are we unified with Christ, but in Christ we are unified with one another, which makes kind of logical mathematical sense, right? If I'm unified in Christ and you are unified in Christ, then I suppose there's not a whole lot of separation between us. In Christ we are unified with one another. One person. And if so, how can we be divided? How can we have enmity? How can we make race and class and gender or anything divide us? 
This is what Paul is proclaiming in Galatians that we had for our, our meditation verse this morning. It's what he's proclaiming here. In Jesus Christ, he did something miraculous through the death and resurrection. See, in the individual Western church, we're all pretty clear about how the death and resurrection of Jesus saves me. We're good with that. We understand the theology pretty well. And even the resurrection of my body, though different pictures of, of heaven make that one a little bit fuzzy, we still kind of get it. He reconciles me to God. Great. Cool. That makes sense. But we completely miss the fact that Jesus died not only to restore me, but to restore us. Not only to reconcile me to God, but also to reconcile me to my brother and my sister. And that these two facets of his work, my personal reconciliation to God and my reconciliation to you, they're not, of, of, they're not one is more important than the other. <laughs> they're of equal importance. Actually, they're inseparable. Because your new life in the resurrection is a life where you and I are part of one body, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Paul, Paul says here that Jesus actually dismantles the law in order to achieve this. And man, this must have sent his Jewish readers into a tizzy. Paul says he broke down the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances. And this wall here is not a figurative one. Paul is speaking of the wall in the temple. And the temple was set up and they had these dividing walls. And there was a wall that separated the Gentile court from the Jewish court. The Gentiles could only come so far into the temple. A physical barrier that represented this division of the flesh. Of those who are far off and those who are near. And Paul calls that a wall of hostility. And he says that Jesus tears it down so that Jew and Gentile alike can come to God. And even more, Jesus abolishes the law. And Paul here is speaking, I think, pretty specifically about the ceremonial and the civil parts of the law that we see. These laws that were specifically designed to set Israel apart from everyone else, to separate them from their Gentile neighbors. Here, Jesus, in his death, in his resurrection, Paul says, invalidates them. Everything in the law that once separated, divided, and caused enmity. We could be here a long time if we were going to dig into theological implications of what it means for the law of God established by him to be dismantled as a hostile thing. It's a huge concept. But what we need to see is that whatever lines you and I have drawn, whatever walls you and I have erected that separate us from them, that keep us disunified, that stunt our diversity, even the ones that we feel are righteous and holy and necessary, are they any more important than the law? 
Are they any more important than the walls that God himself erected that Jesus tore down? Absolutely not. Why do we feel that Jesus can tear down the barriers of the temple and the law, but he can't tear down the walls that we've built? Your wall is flimsy. My wall is petty. And we need to let Jesus tear them down. Because in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, all who come to Christ are now on your team. They're wearing the same jersey. Honestly, it's a terrible illustration. Except that the right response would be to celebrate those who have now been brought near, regardless of what our old history had. But this unity is far more intimate than teammates. I mean, like teammates is a little tiny thing. Next week, we're going to look at the language in here that, that talks about us being the same community, the same family, parts of the temple, and the intimacy that's there. But what we're being told that in Christ's flesh, verse 14, by his blood, verse 15, you have been made one body with all who come to know him. There is no division that can change that. Again, we'll talk about next week. Paul says that we're the new temple of God. That this new body is the new temple. You know, the one that Jesus dismantled for the sake of unity. He's now built a new one. And that's a huge statement and one that, I mean, it takes a lot of time. So that's why it's next week. But when we walk in enmity with our brother, we tear apart the body of Christ. When we create division between us and our sister, we rattle the foundations of the temple of God. There's no room for disunity. And let's not mince words. Any division, any faction, any suspicion or distrust, any hatred, that is there between you and me, that is there between you and your brother or sister, it is a deep and grievous sin. There are warnings against the lack of diversity that we experience in the modern church too. But I think we'll talk more about this later on when, God, when Paul's talking about the gifts that God has given us. When we divide we harm the body of Christ. We tarnish the temple of God. We've got to stop. Whatever wall you have erected must be torn down in Christ. Any wall that you would seek to be built should not be. It cannot be. Whatever line you have drawn between you and your brother or sister, it must be crossed. It must be transgressed for the sake of love. I don't care what our divisions are. Race, come on now, people. Class, 
generational tensions, political ideology, theology, polity, hymn preference, hockey jerseys, I don't care. I'm not saying we won't disagree. We will disagree. I'm not saying that being unified with those who are different than us won't be uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable. But even when we do disagree, and even when it is uncomfortable, even when we are awkward around one another, even when we are confused and even bewildered by one another, to divide the body of Christ, to look down on one another, to mistrust and harbor enmity is sin, pure and simple. And where I have enmity harbored in my heart, and I do, I have to repent. And where you have enmity harbored in your heart, you have to repent. And where this church, grace, has any division or disunity or enmity, it needs to repent. And where the church universal has disunity and division and enmity, it needs to repent. And as we consider together what it means to be the church and who we should be as a particular body, we must do so with an uncompromising commitment to unity. Brothers and sisters, we can't build walls between one another. We have been made one body by Christ through his death and resurrection. So stop it! right? I mean, really, we have to find unity, but, but we have to also admit, as is always the case, this is difficult. This is a lifelong struggle with the world and the flesh and the devil. They have a stubborn influence in our life, and so this is a very, very hard thing. I'm not expecting you to hear me and just change everything about who you are tomorrow, and now unity is easy. This goes against the nature of our flesh, And the only way that that one, that, that one new man is made in place of the two is in the miraculous work of Jesus Christ. It's only in him that those walls come down. And any attempt to do so outside of that reality is futile. So what do we do? Do we just give up then and divide a little bit more here and there and form new de- denominations and keep a shady eye on those troublemakers in the church? Just give in to the carnage and the division of the body while we wait for Jesus to come back and clean up our mess? Well, no. Paul tells the Ephesians to do something here. He's got a word, one word, one command. What does he say? He says, remember. Remember, you who are far off. Remember, you were separated from Christ, from the church, from the covenant, from hope, from God. Remember that in your flesh, the very things that kept you far off, those things, you were proud of them. But in him you have been made a new, free-from-enmity person. Remember what he has done for you. Remember that in him enmity, hostility, division have been put to death. That's our biggest call, to remember the work of Jesus Christ, to walk in that work, as he grows us in our unity, as he tears down our walls. So let us remember, and let us pray that God puts enmity to death in us.
and brings a new unity, a new peace, a new reconciliation for us in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would tear down the walls that we have. We are very good in our flesh at patting ourselves on the back for all the ways that we aren't divisive. But God, I think we know that that is false. And when we don't know it, Lord, I pray that you would rip off the bandage and show us the deep brokenness of our error. Not so that we can live in guilt and shame, Lord, but so that we can be made new in you. We pray that this church, Lord, that grace would be a place um, where enmity dies. Where unity is built up. Where walls crumble in the face of the work of your son. We pray that you would do the work to make that true of us. That you would do the work that in the places where that is true of us, that you would keep us strong in that. We do this quite literally for the sake of your kingdom. Sake of your glory, in the name of your son, amen.